Welcome to Stories from the Midland, a collection of historic tales from Teller County and the surrounding areas. In today's episode, we talk about the Portland mine and the men who made it happen. This episode was written and is being presented for you by Tommy Allen. The Portland proved to be Victor's most profitable mine. In its David Becoming Goliath story, we find mine owners smuggling ore out of their own mine, the benefits of friendship, 47 lawsuits, and best friends who become bitter rivals. Our story really starts in 1886 when a 33-year-old man named Jimmy Burns moved to Colorado Springs with his sisters, drawn there by the promise of easy and accessible gold. In those early days, Burns told his friend Winfield Scott Stratton, I'm gonna make a million and get a beautiful wife and send my brats east to school and build a house as big as General Palmer's. And then I'm going to tell those goddamn millionaires to go to hell. But Burns knew next to nothing about prospecting and soon drew his friend Jimmy Doyle into the effort. A major problem that Jimmy's faced was that most of the gold-rich land had already been claimed by major operations like the Independence Mine and the Strong Mine. But the men were determined to find their own claim, and they pored over claim maps until they found one-tenth of an acre that they could call their own. Burns and Doyle named their claim the Portland after Burns' hometown and got to work on a 30-foot-deep exploratory hole. Now keep in mind that neither man knew much about finding gold, so their efforts seemed fruitless. Frustrated, they asked John Harnan, a sorter from the Independence, to have a look at their new mine and give them some advice. Harnan agreed to have a look, and at the first sight of the rock dump pile, he knew that he had been handed an opportunity. In the pile, he immediately spotted a huge chunk of sylvanite, a dull sulfurous mineral formed from a combination of gold, silver, and tellurium. Sylvanite looks nothing like gold and would never be spotted as such to a layperson. But seeing this sure sign of gold, Harnan must have had a hard time containing any visible signs of excitement when he asked, how much will you give me if I find a vein? The question posed, the Jimmies offered him a third interest, which he of course accepted. He descended the ladder and found the vein that the sylvanite indicated. In addition to knowing the process of mining, Harnan also understood the business of mining. He knew that, with such a small claim surrounded by much larger operations, the adjoining mines would sue, claiming the ore came from their veins. So the three men began a night operation where they were sneaking their ore out under the cover of darkness and taking it to Pueblo for processing. Winfield Scott Stratton's Independence Mine was one of those nearby operations, and Stratton soon became aware of what the trio were doing. But not only were Stratton and Burns friends, but Stratton had widely earned a reputation as a smart businessman and a decent person. When Burns confessed to him their nighttime activities, Stratton offered the funding for defense against litigation from the other mines for a portion of the claim. With the help of the lawyers provided by Stratton, the Portland mine was able to fight off 47 legal claims against them. Not only that, but they were able to turn the lawsuits around and, by the time the legal proceedings were done, 
The Portland mine grew from its original tenth of an acre to encompass more than 30 claims on over 130 acres. The Portland mine had become the largest gold producer of the district and would end up being the most profitable mine over time. Jimmy Burns became the Portland Mining Company's president and his focus would be on growing the mine and taking care of its growing number of miners. While the mine largely prospered under his tenure, he also built the Portland Mill in Colorado Springs and supported the building of the Colorado Springs and Cripple Creek District Railway, also known as the Short Line, to fight rising ore transportation prices from the monopoly formed by the Midland Terminal Railway and the Florence and Cripple Creek Railroad. But unfortunately, money would divide the Jimmies. By 1896, they had become the richest men in Colorado, but in January of that year, a collapse in the mine killed eight miners. Without consulting his business partners, Burns, as the mining company's president, spent hundreds of thousands of the Portland's dollars recovering the bodies and compensating the families. He closed the mine during the exhumation and the consequent underground refortification, and he made sure the deceased received a proper burial. Angered by this, Doyle pitched the accusation at Burns of negligence in causing the miners' deaths. Animosity continued to grow between the two men, and in 1898, Doyle launched the first lawsuit claiming Burns had cheated him on stock shares. The Portland Mining Company was registered in Iowa, and that's where Doyle started the litigation. He won the suit and was awarded $717,000. But Burns and his partners countersued in Colorado, receiving an order from a Judge Lunt in Colorado Springs for Doyle to relinquish the Iowa judgment. Doyle refused the order and was jailed for contempt of court. Of the three men that started the mine, James Harnon sold his shares of the Portland and moved to California, where he is said to have made and lost millions of dollars with no regrets. Doyle became the mayor of Victor. In fact, he was the mayor when he was jailed and was later re-elected to a second term. Because of their feud, Doyle sold his shares to a man named Irving Haubert, completely departing the Portland. James Burns, the man with the original dream that would grow to Cripple Creek's most profitable mine, remained the president of the Portland Mining Company until resigning in 1905. He would go on to build Colorado Springs' Burns Theater in 1912 to rival the Opera House built by Horace Tabor in Leadville. And he would serve as president of the First National Bank of Colorado Springs. James Burns died in 1917. As to the mine itself, it eventually employed 700 men working three eight-hour shifts, and it reached a depth of 3,200 feet. It remained prosperous until the early 1920s. In 1934, it had become bankrupt and was taken over by the United Gold Mines Company. But by 1951, it had yielded some $60 million over its operational time, making it the most productive mine in the district followed by the Crescent and the Independence Mines. Thank you for listening. This is Tommy Allen, and on behalf of Trevor Phipps, have a great day. And should you find yourself in an exceptionally lucrative partnership, don't get so greedy that you try to ruin everything and end up in jail. We'll see you next time for more Stories from the Midland.
You can find the resources used in the writing of this episode on its webpage. Visit storiesfromthemidland.com slash podcast. <laughs>